Thanks for listening to the Tribe Church Podcast. Our prayer is that these episodes bless and equip you in your apprenticeship to Jesus. Our goal as a community is to become more like Jesus and to offer Him through our lives to those around us here in Austin, Texas. More like Jesus, more for others. For more on our church, check out atxtribe.org. God bless. Morning, everyone. Welcome to Tribe. If you're new, my name is Christian. Um, we, uh, we started a new series called Reconstructing Faith. And the name of this particular thing, I'm a songwriter, so I give things names. The name of this particular talk is The Many and the Few. I'll give you, uh, you'll understand in like one second right now. Uh, Matthew 7, verses 13 to 14, there's a, there's a scripture that is super, super famous. And it's sort of, you know, cryptic a little bit sometimes. But I will, this is going to be sort of the central scripture for today. I hope uh, it gives you something special to hang on to and to sort of reframe how you build your faith. So here's what Jesus says. Enter through a narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. So... What is Jesus saying? Something actually fairly offensive, I think, in modern context. He's basically saying this. The majority of people will choose a path that leads to destruction, and only a small portion of those people, of the people in general, will find a journey and actually do what it, what, what it takes to enter something that we all long for. Now, that's a very undemocratic thing to say. But I think it's something that we need to wrestle with if you want to really build your faith. Now, we'll, we'll, t- we'll get to the building your faith part in a second. But let me, I want to introduce you to this guy. Um, he was a, an economist, a philosopher. His name is Wilfredo Pareto. Have you heard of Pareto? Okay, it's Pareto Principle. He's an economist, a philosopher, all kinds of other things. But it, he sort of lived around, it's 19th century guy, and he basically discovered this principle, this general pattern in life, that's called the 80-20 principle. You know, uh, that's another way to, to describe the Pareto principle. And what he discovered is, as, at first, is that he lives in Italy, obviously, by the name. Uh, and he discovered that 20% of the people in Italy possessed 80% of the land in Italy. And it sort of sparked this, this research in all kinds of different areas in life where you can see that you know, 20% of your effort, for example, will achieve 80% of the outcome. 20% of the people in any given company uh, give 80% of the output. 20% of the distractions uh, of the things that you f- focus actually provide 80% of the distractions in your life and sideways energy. And the list goes on and on and on. And 2080 is very rough because it's not 20% exactly. But the idea is, is of this minority of things that will produce the majority of something else. Does that make sense? So the, the reason I bring up Pare- the Pareto principle is that we, humanity wrestles with, with wisdom and understanding and trying to figure out this world. And everything we discover, eventually, that we go, aha, this is really amazing, we can go back to the Bible and see where the Bible said it thousands and thousands of years ago. Right? Now, this principle and this, 
this, this sort of, the many and the few principle is the same principle, right? What Jesus is saying is that many will try the broad gate and that will lead to destruction. Very few will try the narrow gate and that will lead to something that we long for. Why are we talking about reconstruction of faith or construction of faith? It's because we all live by faith. Every single one of us live by faith, right? We are sitting here and we have faith that the electricity is not going to go out. We don't know this, right? But we have faith. And the list goes on and on. We all reconstruct faith all the time. And by faith, I mean we all make assumptions about life, about how life works in general. Everything, economics, relationships, weather, politics, war, right? Um, family, business, money. We all have this construct of faith that we live by because if we don't have faith, the, the, everything falls apart. We need to assume certain things that we don't know for a fact will happen. All, all of us live by faith. All of us reconstruct faith, and re the reason for that is because life will offer corrections into your life where you start questioning, going, I don't think what I believe is true is actually true. And that happens all the time. There's an ongoing process of that. All of us can do it better. All of us can, can build our faith and construct our faith better, but most of us will not succeed. And that is the discouraging thing. Now, it might sound sort of elitist. What are you saying, right? Not, people, not all people are equal, all of those things. But actually, it's the opposite of that. And I'll tell you why it's the opposite of that in a second. The opposite of that is what Jesus gives to our attention is that it's not that you will, you're not strong enough, you're not devoted enough, you're not born, you didn't, you were not born into the sort of the genetic lottery winner pool. What he's saying is that most of us won't be able to build our faith well, not because of capabilities, but because of a posture of heart. And that anybody actually is capable of posture of heart. It's just we just don't choose to, to be that way. And we'll, 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 um, we'll unpack that in a second. So here are the differences. Here's what makes, here's the difference between the many and the few. Ready? If you want to be part of the few, here's, you need to understand this. The difference between the many and the few is one, the source of your faith. The source of your faith. Most of us desperately want me, you, to be the source of your faith. Why? Because you control that. And if you insist on you being the source of your, your own faith, you making sense of, sense of the world, you learning how the world really works, and then living by those principles, you will be in the many. The second part is the posture that you take when you, with that, right? And the posture, a posture is, a posture is an interesting thing because, because a posture is not an active term. Right? A posture is a posture. I can stand like this, defiant or sort of closed, you know, aggressive, or I can stand like this. 
you're able to receive. You're not defensive. You have a learner's posture. You have a humble posture. The broad gate is me-centric. The, the narrow gate is he-centric. And we are fundamentally uncomfortable with that. Because not only it's about a set of rules that are described in an old book called the Bible, it is actually way more than that. It's about a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. It's not, and not only is it about a person who you, who you choose to believe in, in and say, okay, here are the principles that he describes, I'm going to live by that. But it's actually following a living person because Jesus is alive. It's not this codified, ossified, static thing a teaching of a philosopher or of a moral leader. It is following the person. And that is challenging, right? Therefore, the narrow gate. Therefore, most people won't choose it because it's hard. But we all live by faith, right? Even atheists live by faith. Did you, did you notice that? Have you, have you thought this through? You know, you have all kinds of, of, of things that, as an atheist that you believe in that actually require a, a whole ton of faith. You know, my inherited faith, you know, some people go, I grew up in the church. I grew up in an atheist household. That was, that's my inheritance. So sort of my, my, my original faith is atheism, right? There is no God. Everything can be explained, explained by a set of, let's say, physical dimensions and principles and things like that. I was an atheist since birth. My parents were atheists. I was an atheist. And, and I could argue atheism really, really well really, really well. And I can make, if you're a religious person or a, or a spiritual person, I can probably out, you know, you know, outmaneuver you intellectually as an atheist. The problem with that is that I could argue it really, really well until I couldn't. And the problem is not what you can say to somebody else that is convincing, but how life presses against your, your understanding of life. So then what I did is I reconstructed my faith. I was, 20, I was probably 18 years old when I moved from atheism to this sort of Eastern philosophy, New Age uh, set of beliefs, right? Started reading a lot of Eastern philosophy, you know, the, you know, the, the Buddhist way, all kinds of Eastern philosophies, uh, the Vedas, all of, all, all of that stuff. And uh, a bunch of Western, about a, a bunch of Western uh, philosophy and uh, ways of, of, of interpreting Eastern philosophy, which is, which is a diluted Eastern philosophy because it's the American way of saying, I'll take this and then this and this and this and this. It's like a spiritual salad bar. What I like, I'll take everything else throw, I'll throw away. You know, that's the American way, right? We're consumers, right? This is my brand of spirituality. You do you. I'm good, you're good, we're all good. And the universe, dot, 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 right? The universe this, the universe that. And I could argue that really, really well for a long time. Probably between 18 and 26, that's what I was doing. Exploring, I read a lot of books, I loved it. Meditation, transcendental meditation, all kinds of practices that way, right? Until I couldn't. Until life pushes back and you, and you go, Gosh, I, I just can't, you know. How I see the world, it, it, just, it just doesn't compute. Does that make sense? 
And you might be in this room, and you could be a church, uh, a member of the church for years, and be in that, pl in that same place where you can't argue anymore. You can be a Christian. You can be a Bible-believing Christian. And there's, there's massive gaps in your faith, and it's, at some point, it becomes unbearable. And I'll give you a list of what are the reasons why that will maybe you're ready for reconstruction. Here are the reasons. One, a significant relationship falls apart. A friendship. You know, there's a pattern at work that happens, right? You just can't get along with people, can't get along with people. Divorce is a massive relationship. Destruct, destruction, it's catastrophic, right? Significant relationships fall apart. You find yourself enslaved to something, to shopping, to substance abuse, to porn, to a person, you idolize a person, you're enslaved to something, and you just, it becomes unbearable because you're enslaved, you're a slave and you don't wanna be enslaved, enslaved anymore. You may be ready for the narrow gate. Your ways become insufficient. So that's what I talked about a couple of times, where you can, ex you can live a certain way, you can rationalize, you can even argue a certain way, and then it's insufficient, then you go, you know what, I just don't know how to do this well, right? Finding fault with the world fails. This is the most comfortable place you can be as somebody who doesn't flourish. Is you don't flourish and you explain it away with circumstances outside of yourself. It's called the victim mentality. Now, everybody and all of us can't be a victim. There's no good reason to stay a victim. But it's a very comfortable lifestyle because it doesn't require anything from you, right? And at some point, maybe finding fault with the world, with a person, with politics, with whatever it is, your family, with something that happened, fails you long-term and you go, you know what, that's not working for me anymore. You may be ready for a narrow gate. Cultural Christianity disappoints you. You've been a, a Bible-believing, church-going, amen-saying, hands-raising, born-again Christian, and you hit a wall anyway. And it disappoints you, and you go, you know what? I have to rebuild this thing. I have to rework this thing. I have to reconstruct this thing, right? The other reason is loneliness drives you for community, to a, to a need of community. You become aware that doing this alone doesn't, it's not how you were designed to be, right? And you just seek community and you're lonely and you can be in a, you can be in a, in a, in a city like Austin, a bustling city of a million plus people and be super lonely. You can be in crowds all day long and be super lonely. You can go to church and be super lonely. And after a while, you get tired of being lonely and you realize that it's not, not, that's not how you want to be anymore. You may be ready for a narrow gate. And here's the ultimate one. The ultimate is this, the, sort of the bottom line, is that suffering increases slowly, all kinds of suffering, and it trumps your desire to maintain the status quo. Trumps your desire, and you go, you know what? I'm okay with, I, I'm not okay with maintaining the status quo, and I'm uncomfortable with change. I don't know what the answer is, but my suffering has driven me out of my comfort zone, and I'm ready for change. You may be ready for the narrow gate. Um, another guy who saw this from a different angle, but it was really, uh, it's, it's just a, a beautiful 
a quote that is very well known is Leo Tolstoy. He says this, all happy families are alike, and each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. It's the Pareto Principle. It's the many and the few. But he's basically saying that there's a thousand ways to have an unhappy family. But there's only very few ways to have a fa happy family, and it's not complicated. Right? And it's not complicated. Have you ever had a friend, like, have you ever been part of a, a friend group? And, and, the, and there's, one f always, there's always one friend in that friend group who is just stuck, right? And he, he goes, I don't understand why dot, dot, dot. Like, why I'm not progressing professionally. Why I can't, you know, find a date, <laughs> you know, uh, or whatever. And, they all, and everybody else in that group knows exactly the, what the problem is, except for that person. <laughs> Have you ever been part of a friend group like that? Okay, if you haven't been part of a friend group like that, Maybe you're that friend, and, and, and you know what? That's actually fine, and th there's actually good news in that. See, it's, not a, it's, a, it's actually a positive thing because what it means is that it's not that complicated. Maybe you're just stuck, but there's friends around you who know the answer to that. It's not complicated for them at all if you assume a certain posture, right? And that's the beauty of living in community, right? <coughs> There's, uh, I just thought of this, uh, it, it wasn't in my notes, but, but um, my daughter Bella, she just, she just did, uh, defended her the senior thesis and he wrote, she wrote something really remarkable. I posted it on Facebook and I'll, I'll tell, you can go to christianrayflores.com. Uh, I actually posted that, her thesis on my, blog, on my blog. And the reason I bring this up is this, is that she starts a story, she wrote a thesis about work ethic in America. And she starts a story by, by describing, you know, being in, like in, a, in a dance competition and she's in this sort of side room where the dancers are getting ready and she is with a friend. And her friend is in tears because he's, her mom is so obsessed with her work that she had to rush out, take a f took a phone call and, and missed her performance. And the friend is in tears because she's saying, why does her work why is her work more important than me? And the whole thesis that Bella wrote beautifully is, this is my perspective, I'm a teenager, of how grown-ups can see work and how to, how to create a family that is healthy, you know? And it sort of, sort of confirms what Leo Tolstoy say, it's uncomplicated. You know, there's all kinds of ways to have an unhappy family. But there's very few ways, narrow way, narrow gate, to create a happy one. And the good news is, it's uncomplicated, right? And what Jesus does in, the, in this, what some call the greatest sermon ever preached, Sermon on the Mount, is he explains the posture that it takes to be in those few people that choose the narrow gate. It unlocks certain things. So I'm going to read this to you and then unpack it for you, okay? Matthew 5, 1 to 9. You've read this a thousand times, I'm sure, especially if you grew up in America. 
I remember reading it for the first time. It was 25 when I read it for the first time in my life and like rocked my world, you know. <laughs> and uh, here's what it says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. He, the context of this is really remarkable. I've been sort of meditating on the scripture all week. And what strikes me, there's a few things that struck me anew after, you know, I've, I've been studying this for a long time, is that he's not saying this to people who are not religious. Right? He's preaching to Israel, he's to Jewish people. They're all religious. The whole society is religious. More than that, the context of this scripture says that Jesus was teaching and there was a crowd that came and he actually, he actually walked away from the crowd into a side of a hill and his disciples, sort of the closest people, followed him. So he's speaking this stuff to people who are not only generally religious, but people who are sort of devoted. He's apprentices. And I'm curious about what he, why is he saying that to them? And, and I have a couple of theories. One is that is he saying that to them? Like this is the posture, posture you need to have? Or is he saying it to them as people who are helping others? Maybe saying, this is how you recognize, this is how you recognize someone who will be transformed. And I wonder if, not, if it's not the second thing. I'm curious about that. I'm not sure. I don't know what the answer to that. Uh, I'm, 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 I have all kinds of, I have a long uh, questions for Jesus from when I, for when I meet him. You know, I'll have eternity to ask those questions. I'm sure I'll be in line for a long time, right? But I've, I've been leading churches 23 years, 24 years, something like that. Um, and it's fascinating how the Pareto principle or the narrow gate principle or the 80-20 principle is true. I've studied the Bible with countless people. I've advised and counseled countless people. And I can tell you, one meeting, uh, I really have a high gauge on if somebody's going to make it, quote unquote, right? uh, Especially this time, right? In this moment. If somebody's ready for the narrow way. If somebody can be transformed. And the, re- and the reason I know this is not because I know the complexity of human nature. It's because I know it's uncomplicated. I know that for you to be transformed, for you to enter the narrow gate, for you to actually s- to, to allow God to rush into your life and turning upside down and, and create something remarkable, it requires just a certain type of, of posture, of heart. And I, th- I believe in the scripture, that's what Jesus is saying, right? He's not saying, he, he, he'll re- list seven different things, right? And by the way, seven is um, the number of perfection in the Bible. He lists seven different things. And I believe, I have a new theory after reading this this week, right? Is that maybe he's not 
describing seven different things you need to do. What he's describing is seven, seven different ways how a narrow gate posture manifests itself. So he's describing actually one thing, not seven things. He's just describing the fruit, right? And here's, I, I want to sort of decipher this for them because it's, this, this, this is so ingrained, I think, in Christian culture that you can, that it's almost mythical, right? But let me, let me paraphrase this for you, okay? So poor in spirit, what does that mean exactly? How does that look like in a narrow gate heart? Poor in spirit is this. I am a spiritual beggar. I am a spiritual beggar. And the outcome of that, he, so he describes, here's the posture, and here's the outcome. The outcome of that, if you're a spiritual beggar, you will get the full picture of how the world really works. That's the if and then. Does that make sense? Those who mourn, right? What does that mean? I will drop the facade and get in touch with my emotions and be honest with what I feel about my pain and my hurt and my wounds, and I will be vulnerable. And if I, if, I, if I decide to do this, the outcome is you will find the map from grief to joy. That is the blessed part, right? The third one is the meek. What is meek? How do you, how do you paraphrase that in, in our language? I will listen humbly and obey. That's being meek. Not just listen and argue. Not just listen and not do anything, but listen humbly and obey. And the outcome of that is I will experience, experience exponential growth. Exponential growth. What's the next one? It's hunger. What, what does that look like? Paraphrased. I will thirst for God, for everything God. I will thirst for God, for scripture, for prayer, for learning, for community, for worship, for everything God. I will thirst for that. And I'll tell you, when I meet with someone and when I try to help someone and I see that thirst, I know that person can be far gone, can, can, be, can have all kinds of issues in their life, but they will make it, they will be transformed. And Jesus says that the person who thirsts for God, their life will overflow. Right? They will be fed and, and they will be poured into supernaturally. The merciful... What does that mean? I will let go of grudges and generously love my enemies. That's a choice, you know. Every single person in this room has been hurt and will be hurt many times. To be merciful is a choice. It's a posture. And it's your choice and my choice to let go of grudges. And if we choose to do so, the, the promise is they will experience forgiveness themselves. Guess what? You need to be forgiven of all kinds of stuff. Most of them people don't even know because you're too ashamed to share about them. And if you choose to be merciful, you enter, you're entering the narrow gate because you will be shown mercy. You will be forgiven. Other people will respond to you. Pure in heart, what does that mean? I will drop my guard. I will tear down the walls of trust. I don't trust you. I don't know if I can trust you. I've been hurt before. All of that stuff, right? 
I've failed. I've tried everything, and this might not work for me. It's totally normal to feel that way, but you can choose to be pure of, in heart. And you can say, I will, I'll just put down my guard. And what happens then is that you will experience the presence of God. That's what Jesus promises. Just relax, and God will rush in. What are the peacemakers? Peace, I will build bridges with other people. I will make amends. I will initiate. I will build bridges that are broken. And what you will experience then is you will become God's ambassadors. It will be so self-evident that you're different. And that's why Jesus says you will be called children of God. The peacemakers, right? You know, I became... I reconstructed my faith in my, in my, when I was 18 from atheist to new age, when I was 25 from new age to Christianity. And what made it stick this way, this, this time when I was 25, 26 years old, when I was sort of edging my way into, way into Christianity because I was desperate enough. Because that whole list that I listed before, you may be ready, I had that whole list. That was true about me. And the one thing I did that, that was that was wise, you know, the narrow way wise, is I basically turned to, the, you know, I looked at the church and it was imperfect. I didn't like the worship very much. You know, I don't like, I'm an introvert, so I don't like being with a bunch of people anyway. Right? And here I am. And the person who was mentoring me, you know, I really wanted to build a good family. That was sort of my biggest pain point. And I turned to him and I said, can you... Can you teach me? How do I get what you get? Right? And he goes, I'll teach you. And I said, I'll follow you. If you can teach me, I'll follow you. It was that simple. It was uncomplicated. And what I'm saying, what I was saying in the words that I was saying was this Beatitudes. I had, I had that posture. Here's what it implies. I am poor. I don't know how to do this. And you are rich. You know how to do this. Will you teach me? It's that simple. It's that simple. I'll give you another list. And this is the list of you may not be ready for this kind of transformation. Here's the list. You treat this process as a consumer. You know? You treat this process as an intellectual exercise. as an intellectual exercise. That is the, big, the biggest mistake you can make because you're not your brain. You're a whole person. You're physical, emotional, spiritual, all in one. And if you narrow it down to the intellectual exercise of figuring out Christianity, that doesn't make sense in this particular incarnation. All you will do is you run in circles in your brain and nothing will change. You're not your brain, you're not your intellect, you are a son of God and a daughter of God, created in his, in his image, fearfully made, with unsurpassable worth. You're an emotional being, a spiritual being, a physical being. All of you needs to be transformed. All of you needs to be surrendered. All of you needs to be reconstructed. 
Here's another, another thing. You insist on holding grudges. And that's hard to hold grudges, right? It's hard to let go of those things. We love our grudges. We can put a lot, a lot of, it's very comforting to hold grudges. Do, do you agree? You resist to making amends with other people. You do not listen. And maybe you hear, but you do not act. You do not surrender fully. You do not trust in Jesus. Then you do not learn in community. I want to figure it out myself. I don't like organized religion. Guess what? You are wired for community. You are wired for community. You can't do this alone, even if you try. You won't. You will fail. That is the broad gate. It will lead to destruction. You are wired, you are created to be part of a faith community. Imperfect, people who hurt each other, people who live together, who learn together. That's tribe. And maybe this is not your tribe because we're whatever, quirky in one way or another. But find your tribe and love them, and love them hard. I have a little poster in my, in my office. Find your tribe, love them hard. 13 years later, after my, after my first sort of reconstruction of faith into Christianity, we moved to the States, we're overseas until then. You know, I'm sort of starting over. You know, I don't even know what I'm gonna do professionally. You know, people go, well, you, sh you, could, you could do ministry as well as other things. I work in, in the nonprofit world for a while. You can do ministry. Deb was saying, you, you know, you're a decent pastor. I'm like, I don't know. I have an accent. <laughs> you know, I have an accent. <laughs> I don't even know what, the, I mean, if I'm even qualified, to be honest. With you. I mean, those are real thoughts, right, in my head. On top of that, so we're, we, are, uh, we, we moved and we're stateside, and we're sort of rebuilding. And I realized that I was like, I was 40, that the faith that got, had gotten me to that point was not, I couldn't envision it taking me for another 20 years. I just couldn't see it, right? On top of that, I had trauma, and trauma that, that came from church. Like, I, I've given up my, a very successful career to go in the ministry. From making this kind of money to making this kind of money. And I've through the grace of God, Deb and I built a community of faith that was just remarkable. It went from just a group in the living room to 400 people plus. And then through, you know, bad leadership, we, we went and, and led another church for a while because we were asked to sort of save another church, essentially, like not save in a Jesus way, but in a management way, right? Um, we left our community in, in the hands of somebody else who destroyed it. Just tore it apart. And it came from inside the church. It came from, came from pastors. It came from leaders in the church. You know, and I couldn't talk about it without falling apart and crying for years. In the church. Something I, I, I left everything to build this and it was just destroyed. Not from the outside, from the inside. So I was like, okay, I'm 40 years old. I need to reconstruct my faith once again. And it took the same, and the thi here's the thing. It's very, very hard, but it's uncomplicated, and that's the good news. And it, it's, again, 
I'm a beggar. I'm a spiritual beggar. So I just devoted myself to relearning how to pray. I learned how to Sabbath, and that changed my life. I went through grief recovery, and it just transformed me. I could now speak with, about these, these traumas without crying. You know, for some of you, you need to go to celebrate recovery. You have an addiction of some sort. We have a great ministry here. Robert Gant uh, leads it, and Shelley Gant leads it. Every Sunday, they meet here. You should go to that. Whatever it takes, you should do it. You should be a beggar. I chose to trust. You know, I had this, this time of discipleship with my wife where she was discipling me, and she basically said, who are the men in your life that you will trust? And I couldn't name one person. I couldn't name one person. I was 40 years old. I was leading a church. I was 15 years in the faith, and I couldn't name one man that I would trust my life with. And all I had to do is just trust and just change that. Lower your guards. Pure in heart. And God just rushes in. You know, he just rushes in. There's a story in Acts 8, 9 w- that is sort of similar because it describes Paul, the Apostle Paul, who was a Pharisee. He was probably the most educated about among, the, uh, among the apostles. He was multilingual. He was the leader of men. And he was wrong. He was so wrong in his faith that he had to be stopped on the road to Damascus and he was blinded, you know, by Jesus. And Jesus basically had to speak to them. You, ha- you know you're knucklehead when Jesus visits you in person and says, why do you persecute me? Right? So that's what happened to Paul. And then what happens is in, in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 9 of Acts, Saul got up from the ground, but when he, he opened his eyes, he could not see. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. You know, sometimes you can be around for a long time and you find yourself blind. And you find yourself led by the hand by someone. And you need to allow, you need to allow that to happen if you want to reconstruct your faith. Who are you going to trust? And then in Acts 9, 17, there's a, there was a person he was supposed to meet, and, and Jesus had to visit that person. And he says, hey, you know, I want you to work with that, this guy, Paul. And the, the person he went to, his Ananias, he goes, no, no, I think you got it wrong, God. You know, it's, I love it when people push back. Like, they're so authentic. They're like, I think you got this wrong, Jesus, you know. And he's just like, just do it. <laughs> just please obey, you know. You too. Right? Uh, then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales from, from, uh, fell from Saul's uh, eyes and he could see again. And he, he got up and he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. You can be as well-versed in the Bible, talented, skilled, and you need, God will send somebody your way so that you can be, you can see again, so you can regain your strength. And the, and, and the problem th- that gets in our way in those situations is pride. It's just that simple. It's pride. I know too much. No, you don't. No, you don't. Will you allow somebody be sent by God to you to change you, to help you see again, to take you by the hand? The same narrow way applies 
to a 15-year-old, 25-year-old, and 45-year-old, 65-year-old, and so on. It applies the same way. So I want to leave you with this as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, as we take this juice and this bread to remind us of the sacrifice of Jesus that gave his life so that you can be transformed over and over and over again. Three, three questions. How desperate I am for renewal of faith. And you know what? I actually ask that question to every person, with every person that I counsel, especially to everybody I'm studying the Bible with. I go, look, I've, I heard your story, and the question to you is, how desperate are you? And the reason I ask is because you need to be at a point where you're ready to shake up the status quo to be able to enter the narrow gate. How desperate am I? Am I willing to be one of the few? And what am I going to do about it? And the reason I tell you this simple, this simple framework is this. Are you at a place in life, emotionally, that can, you can consider, you, you can allow yourself to be a spiritual beggar? You're desperate. You're that desperate. Just tell me what to do, God. Right? And that's an emotional state. It's not an intellectual state, it's an emotional state. And the second big thing is action. If your emotion doesn't spark action, nothing will change. You know, I was courting Deb and was in love. She came and visited and this and that. And she, and, and she was like, so, you know, she was going back home. We lived in different countries. And I go, I, I don't want you to go back. I want you to come back and be with me. I love you. And then she goes, and I couldn't say, will you be my girlfriend for some reason? And she goes, so what are you going to do about it? <laughs> <laughs> That's my wife for you, you know? And the question to you is, okay, maybe you desire a need to, for transformation. Maybe your desire a renewal of faith, a rebirth of, of sorts, whether you've been zero days in the faith or 40, 40 years in the faith. What are you going to do about it, actually? Because that's, that changes everything. Are you going to think about it for another year or two and be stuck again and go in circles? Are you going to lower your guard? Or are you going to be a beggar for Christ? Are you going to trust? Are you going to build bridges? Are you going to forgive? Are you going to make amends? Are you going to do what hearts of the narrow way do? And that was, that's what Jesus was describing. Let's just meditate on this as we take the bread and the juice.